Geezers of Gear, episode 42. Today's episode is brought to you by PRG, the world's leading provider of solutions and services in entertainment and events. PRG brings industry-leading creativity, experience, and technology to every project. Their teams include the most accomplished experts, engineers, and craftspeople working in theater, film, TV, broadcast, concert touring, corporate events, hotels, and staging. With 170 patents and more than 70 trademarks, PRG are a company defined by innovation, and through their network of 70 offices spanning five continents, they're capable of delivering for customers anywhere on the globe. Visit PRG.com. Happy episode 42, Henry. Happy episode 42. Good morning, Marcel. Yeah, so here we are preparing for a hurricane again. Welcome to Florida. Oh, happy times. Batting down the hatches for this one, that's for sure, right? It's, well, it's being forecast in at a four now. You it's know, funny so. because I don't even watch the news. I just uh, wait for Henry's morning uh, <laughs> fearful, update. fearful updates because, you know, typically Henry is going to make everything sound a little bit worse than it really is. So, <laughs> so what was it five days ago henry said oh yeah we're screwed we got a hurricane coming and then four days ago he said don't worry about it it's missing us completely it's it's blown away it's going to be gone and then yesterday he comes back and says you better buy supplies (laughs) so (laughs) uh so i get all over the place you know i don't need the news uh you know it's funny somebody one of my facebook people oh jamie martis from uh sid ram and coffee cult and all the different businesses that Jamie owns. But um, Jamie Martis posted sort of a diagram that showed this cone that covers the whole state of Florida. There's this cone of certainty where they think it's going to hit, right? And (laughs) it just seems over the years, the Hurricane Center just keeps widening that cone to where they can't possibly miss, right? So it's somewhere in here. And it's just ridiculous because you send the entire state of Florida into a mad panic and uh, you know, yesterday grocery stores were out of water and out of all kinds of supplies. And there was lines at gas stations, of course. And, you know, I just kind of sit here and go, oh, boy, here we go. Remember that, remember that picture I sent you? Maybe we can post it back on Facebook where I was holding the last loaf of bread in the bread aisle before Irma. <laughs> remember yeah, that? Yeah, that was I two do. days before Irma, you know? Yeah. Now, and, you know, I mean, I think the flip side of that is like Hurricane Andrew when I first moved to Florida nobody cared. It, it, we were so complacent. Nobody did anything really to prepare and we got completely hammered. Absolutely. You know, and then there was no water and, you know, it was like living in a third world country there for, for a few weeks where, um, you know, you just, there was no electricity in big parts of South Florida and it was a mess and, you know, lots of, lots of devastation and stuff. So, so anyways, we've got another hurricane coming, and I don't even really know the name. What's this one called? I think it's called Dorian. Dorian, that's it. Right. I guess we'll get to know that in the next few days. We used to have these hurricane parties where um, every time someone said feeder band, you had to drink. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so if you had the news on, feeder band was coming up relatively frequently. And uh, so you were drunk before the storm ever hit and you didn't know whether it hit or not by the time you woke up. So, um, so anyways, onward. And uh, here we are, episode 42. We've actually got a really cool episode today with uh, Eric Stewart. And um, what's his company called again? Gen- uh, Gentian. Gentian Events. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, really, really interesting and important topic, crowd security and crowd control and safety, you know, with um, who was it? Uh, Ariana Grande, who had a bomb go off in one of her right. shows in, in uh, where was that? That was in England, right? That was in England. And then it Manchester, was uh... Manchester. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, shootings, the Las Vegas one. Um, so, you know, this obviously with terrorism and crazy people and all the things we have going on in this weird, wonderful world we're in today. Um, this is a huge this is a huge thing. I mean, honestly, you know, me at my age, I start thinking, you know, do I really need to go to a football game? Do I really need to go to this, you know, mass crowd of people and stand in the middle of it and you know, it's it is a scary thought, and I'm sure people in London and Paris and all over the world who are taking subways and stuff, you're trying not to gather in larger crowds, and it, it's sad at the time that we're in. But anyways, this guy uh, Eric is a is pretty interesting guy, right? Super yeah. interesting guy, and you know, just the fact that he spent as much time as he has in in law enforcement and. Well, I mean, you definitely got a huge background on him when you did like a pre-interview. Yeah, right? so it's amazing. You know? Yeah, the most interesting thing that I ran into is you know people of you know people that are our friends now. You know, I get um, phone calls during the week in between Geezer's episodes, like, okay, who's next week's guest, right? Yeah, and you know, this was kind of interesting because I I think it's definitely something that's relevant. It's something that needs to be talked about, right? Yeah. You know, but at the same time, probably of the 10 or 15 calls that I've taken uh, about the upcoming guest on, on geezers or just talking about it, it's like a 50-50 mixed bag. You know, yeah. people want to go, yeah, this is a really important topic. And it's like, well, no, I don't want to give some nutbag any ideas. So it, right. it's really kind of it's really kind of weird. I think, um, you know, this is a sensitive topic uh, for our industry. Um, you know, certainly I was talking to one of our vendors out in Las Vegas and I said, Hey, the Las Vegas shooting is going to come up and he goes, "Ah, I'm just not going to listen to that. That's just too stressful of a thing for me, you know? And, um, I said, you know, I think it's worth listening to, but it's, it's just, it was interesting to see the reactions. And this is of course really outside the box for us because we're really not going to talk about gear today, right? We're going to talk about, uh, taking care of your, your employees and your production people and stuff like that. So no, it's, really it's incredibly relevant. It's incredibly important. I understand there's going to be some people who are sensitive and may not want to listen, or there might even be people bored by the topic or whatever it is. But, you know, it's just like uh, nobody wants to listen to a program on exercise or fitness or weight loss. But, you know, I can tell you that those podcasts are killing it out there because yeah. as much as we hate the topic, we definitely want to listen and learn about it. But you know, this to me is one of the, probably the most important podcast episode we will have done yet uh, in the 42 that we've done. And it may not become the most successful. It may not be the most downloaded, but um, I think it's going to be one of the most important. So anyways, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be great. And, you know, the guy, the guy is very credible, very knowledgeable. So it's not like we're just bringing some schmuck on to talk about uh, crowd <laughs> safety and security. Um, this guy is, is probably one of the most, 
uh, most knowledgeable people in Absolutely. the world uh, on that topic. So should be good. Um, yep. A couple of things from me. So I, I'm uh, very happy for a couple of good friends in the industry, um, Eric Loader and uh, Quano Biviano from ULA in Australia. They've gotten together and, and Con and ULA are now the importer and distributor for Elation in Australia. And I assume New Zealand as well, but I'm not positive on that one. Um, but you know, Khan, for those who know him, I met him when he was the Comar distributor, probably 25 years ago and have been very close friends with him ever since he, uh, worked very closely with Robe for a number of years and was actually partners with, uh, Joseph from Robe on the Anolis LED brand. Khan is, is really big in, um, LED screens and video and, uh, you know, really a staple in the Australian lighting distribution world and is by far the best distributor relation could have gotten in that market. So I think it'll go really well. I think they're showing together at uh, the Integrate show right now in Australia. I think it's in Melbourne. And um, from what I hear from both of them, the response to that connection and, and that relationship and, and, you know, the access to elation in the Australian market has been uh, has been very well received. That's so, really great news. Two yeah. great guys, you know, so they are. And they've both actually remarkably been on this show. So uh, we've had both of them on Geezers of Gear at different times. So that's cool. that's a really good one. Another thing I wanted to mention is that um, we've sort of been doing a sponsorship drive just to uh, ask our existing sponsors to re-up, and we've reached out to a couple of new sponsors as well, and so far it's all yeses. So I guess we and you and especially our guests are doing something right because our sponsors are, are absolutely on board with us and uh, it's really great to see when you sign sponsors up for six months at a time and we reach out and say, hey, you want another six months and you can't even really finish the question and they're saying yes. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, that's that's been really awesome and, and uh, I'm obviously pretty happy about that because this does take a lot of time and cost us some money to do and uh, we want to yeah. keep it growing and and keep it you know exciting and interesting so sponsorship is is necessary unfortunately and um and yeah i mean that's really all i had there's a couple of really interesting podcasts coming up we've got uh next week we've got the founders of turbo sound and function one function one yeah they'll be uh they'll be really cool henry knows a lot about those guys and uh i think in a couple weeks we've got huntley christie coming right that's right i think we have a uh an open space we have a couple of loose commitments in between so yeah definitely we got Huntley and we you know the function one guys right so very very cool stuff yeah know? that's awesome you got so, anything on gear this week a little bit on gear so American DJ launched the Starship lighting centerpiece so it's an LED you know driven centerpiece and I'm you know for some reason and not to sound like a florist about it right but I kind of always have been a fan of centerpieces over I the years. I was going to say that. You're a big centerpiece guy. You and uh, was it Robert Mokri who was always a big centerpiece guy? There's somebody else who was always really big. But I know you with the Comar and Clay Packy had oh, those yeah. like Astro Raggy and all that kind of stuff. Oh, uh, I mean, the you know, you know the giant... Um, God, Comar did one that was just huge. It was yeah. a uh, what was that, that big that flying guy? saucer one. I can't... Yeah. The Fiavra was one... 
And uh, anyway, um, can't, it's just I'll I scream it out at three o'clock in the morning. They've got one sitting in the factory. Last time I went there, I remember oh. going, oh, my God, I saw some of those. I actually uh, sold one in uh, a massive club in Canada, like, I don't know, 25 years ago. I sold them a couple of them, and they did nothing but fail. Yeah, they did. But, I mean, God, when they were lit up, you know, because they had, they were the first to introduce the 1,200-watt MSR into that fixture, and they just, it was a 360-degree, you know, circle of light. And yeah. you just got honking ass light output out of that yeah but uh anyway so you know over the years you know centerpieces have come and gone i think this starship one i watched the video on uh, youtube this morning about it it's just um you know it's an it's an led uh batten type of effect that's motorized and there's uh i guess six spires on it or six sticks that go out and you know it does enough in my mind that if you just wanted to take eight of these and stuff them into the roof of a club you know, that's it. You're that's done. Your and I mean, that's your light show. I mean, you know, full RGB, fully in, uh, independently controllable pixels or, you know, elements of the LED array. It moves. You know, what more do you need? So um, very, very cool kind of stuff. I think it's it's an innovative centerpiece. It's, you know, centerpieces like this are designed for nightclubs on budgets, right? Yeah. Hang two or four up and there you go and nothing else, right? Right, yeah. And it's uh, it's very kind of cool, you know? Neat. And go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I said neat. Neat stuff. And then it's kind of funny. The old farts are ruling the touring business. So I was on Polestar this morning on trending tours. So they give you the top 20 trending tours. Uh, sorry, the top 30. But 20 of those are the old fart bands that we know that have been touring forever. You know, uh, Boyster Cult, Little River Band, Rolling Stones, uh, Kiss, Brett Michaels, Bob Seger, Steely Dan. I mean, the list just Speaking is, of Kiss, Gene Simmons turned 70 a couple years, uh, a couple days ago, I saw. Oh, my God. Yeah, which just blows me away. Blows me away. Gene Simmons, 70 years old. And can you imagine being 70 and you still got to get up every morning, put on a bunch of makeup and tights and high heels and go out and play music? You know, the yeah. same songs that you played 50 years ago? Yeah, it's... it's well, he, I mean, he it's quite will... a commitment to uh, to that brand, I guess. I watched his interview uh, whew, before the tour started anyway, this last tour, you know, and he goes, look, I'm getting up there in years. Uh, my gear that I wear on the stage with the the dragon boots and everything else, it weighs 38 pounds. Jesus. And he goes, it just absolutely kicks my ass. You do a, a two and a half or a three hour show and you're just spent after that from from doing that. You know, so if anybody's ever carried a backpack for any distance, you know same kind of scenario and you know being close to 70 wow that's pretty amazing right yeah yeah that's wild that's so good wild. luck to you gene out there wow yeah. no but that's a that's an interesting point that you make the fact that uh you know aside from what taylor swift that i read the other day she's now uh it's it is widely thought that she's making five hundred thousand dollars a day right now Wow. And uh, so Taylor Swift, there's no end in sight for her. She keeps sweeping the floor. Um, but other than her and I guess a few other like pop acts, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which I wouldn't even dare to come up with the names of them. But, you know, who's big out there in the touring world right now? Uh, you know, certainly it's all these old bands. So. Iron Maiden. I mean, they continue to sell out shows. They've just had a resurgence. Yeah. And I think I think really what they did by painting up the 747 and doing the Ed Force One documentary where Bruce Dickinson flew the plane, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, I think that that just got a lot of people looking, you know, and that yeah. they did that. They released that documentary just before the tour a couple of years ago where they landed in Fort Lauderdale and they were able to get enough viral, uh, you know, a, this video to turn viral where there were fans lined up in the landing pattern of, of Fort Lauderdale International taking pictures of Ed Force One landing. Well, they right? didn't just land there. They I think that plane sat there for like two weeks. It was there for a while because yeah, the, I, I the tour opened, it was on the yeah. no, on the news and um, all kinds of friends were posting pictures of it online and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great, you know, that's an old band showing that you can use new media to promote yourself and, and help, you know, bring you some new fans and stuff. But, you know, I, I mean, everyone, the all of these acts just seem to be doing a great job, not only maintaining because the Stones obviously have to appeal to a larger audience than the people they started with, because most of those people are dead. So yeah. for them to tour around and fill stadiums, you're going to have to have a younger crowd follow you as well, at least younger than your original fans. Right. And, exactly. you know, I've seen a lot of pictures of that. Uh, the Stones show, I I didn't and probably won't go see it but um you know one i forget who it was i think it was jim lenahan tom petty's old ld who um who said that the the stage the video setup looks like four giant iphones and <laughs> you know and then someone commented basically saying you know maybe that's what it should look like when that's the screen that people are used to spending so much time staring at all day, today's fans, today's audience. And so maybe that's part of the, the shtick, the play that they were coming up with was to make them look like giant iPhones. But, you know, really cool looking rig. I mean, they are massive screens. And for the most part, they're, um, you know, they're iMags of the band members. Mm. And, uh, and then there's some, you know, video content as well. But uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of cool, cool shows out there right now, for sure. Absolutely. Tool is out touring too. That's one of my favorite, at least musical bands. They're horrible live, but yeah. it's interesting to see that they're warming up to a new album, I guess. So that's kind of cool. No, they've got one out. It came out a Do couple they? weeks ago. Yeah. It's, okay. It's now I got to buy it before the storm. So. <laughs> well, and I need to, I need to make mention of my, uh, friends in Canada, uh, a band called Took which my son was surprised to, to uh, see that it was spelled T-O-Q-U-E. Toque, of course, being the Canadian name for a ski hat. And uh, so anyways, these guys are basically the band that plays behind Slash and Miles Kennedy. Um, oh, cool. And uh, it's three Canadian guys that I think at least two of them were from a, an old Canadian club slash recording band called Age of Electric. But anyways, they started a band a few years ago, almost as a joke, called Took, and they do Canadian cover songs, and uh, they just came out with their second album yesterday or day before yesterday, and I've been listening to it nonstop for a couple of days, because it's old Canadian hits, you know, it's like they've got Spirit of the Radio on on uh, this album from Rush. Oh, wow. That's very so, cool. uh, yeah, I mean, check it out if you have Apple Music or something where you can listen to it for free. Um, but, uh, you know, really, really a great, uh, great band and, and pretty good album, but anything else on gear? No, that's about it. I mean, just really it, it's slow We're you know, we're slowly creeping towards LDI, right? Yeah. So a bunch of new product introductions there, but we're really in that end of summer transitioning into the fall dead spot where, you know, everybody's got their, you know, top secret skunk works 
yeah. you know, going full steam for LDI, right? Yeah, so. I mean, I've heard I've heard some buzz and rumors of some things coming out. And, you know, another thing, uh, now that I think of it, we're going to have to have somebody from ACT come back on and give us another update on the MA3 soon. Yep. Um, what was the last update we had heard? I That's been, remember. what, now two months ago now? I know that... No, um, what what was it they said at that point? I thought they said... Uh, September, October. That's correct. So, you know, it's time to revisit them um, yeah. for sure and, and get that update. I'd be fibbing if I knew exactly what was going on with it. Yeah. I do know that, you know, MA3s are shipping. They're shipping quite steadily, but I'm, you know, haven't been brought up the update of the, um, of where the software is right now. So it might be worth a quick. I actually up. noticed this week on Gear Source that we've seen our first uh, couple of MA3 used for sale. Yep. That's right. So that's interesting. I, I don't understand uh, why somebody, unless, I mean, I guess one side of it would be that they're just fed up waiting and they had to get move on to something else. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe another side is just that they bought them for a specific show and needed to resell them and, you know, yeah. reuse the capital on something else. But obviously at this point, if you're selling a used MA3, you're getting very close to new price for it anyways. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not like you're taking a massive hit on it, but... Maybe yep. that's the exact right thing to do. Who knows, you know, or maybe they know something. Maybe there's a tweak on the hardware coming. I don't know. Hopefully not, because that would make some people angry. Absolutely. So, yeah, we'll get somebody from ACT on uh, maybe next week and have them give us a bit of an update on that console. But um, otherwise, let's uh, let's go ahead and start talking to uh, Eric. Thank you for joining us. First of all, you know, we appreciate you taking your time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, your field is obviously one that's, uh, become a much bigger concern as of late. So I'm guessing that you're, you're quite busy, much busier than you were maybe five, six years ago. And yeah, I'm much busier than I want to be, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it's funny because we're preparing here in South Florida for a hurricane right now that's coming this weekend, which is something, you know, that we're unfortunately pretty, un pretty accustomed to. But um, I have a friend in the generator business and, you know, whenever there's a hurricane anywhere near uh, Florida, he's licking his chops because he's getting calls from hospitals and all kinds of different places that have to have power no matter what. And, um, you know, he's got these massive generators that are the back of a semi truck, like a 50 foot trailer or whatever. So, um, similar business. I mean, I guess it's, it's not something where you're sitter, sitting around hoping for attacks or terrorism, but, uh, certainly, you know, I would think that your business was more about preventing them than reacting to them. Uh, absolutely. My, my, that's my preference, but I think we've got to be in a position to be able to react to them when they happen. And, and if we pretend they're not going to happen, then, uh, we fall by the wayside and we, you know, we make mistakes. If we, if we're not ready and we haven't prepared our crowd for what could happen, yeah. then we know what the consequences are. And, uh, you know, I always, I always compare our, our shows to an airline. You, you'd never get on an airplane without being given a briefing as to how to safely leave that aircraft. So why, why aren't we doing the same? You know, why are we not preparing our staff, our crew and our crowds ready for all the various things that might happen. Well, it's, um, it's so true. And I mean, even, you know, sadly, whether it's getting on an airplane or it's even sending your kids away to school these days, 
Um, you know, there are security measures that are in place that instruct kids, you know, if somebody comes in and I guess this is more of an American problem than other places in the world, but if someone comes into a school with, with a gun looking to hurt people, what should we do to protect ourselves? And, you know, it's, it's unfortunately, it's a topic that's incredibly important today and, and something that we've got to, you know, we've got to be aware and we've got to be educated as opposed to sitting back and hoping it doesn't happen to us, right? Yeah, and, and, and the reality is, uh, unless you've seen anything different, when that safety briefing takes place on the aircraft, I've never seen anybody stand up and say, oh, you've scared me so much, I'm going to get off the aeroplane now. <laughs> uh, right, and and yeah. likewise, when you brief your kids about being safe on the street, you know, you, they don't go to, to bed having nightmares any more than they would have got to bed having nightmares on a normal day. Yeah, it's very um, true. I think you just, you know, we, we're just doing what we need to do. We look after our kids properly by warning them of dangers of drugs and everything else, and we ought to be preparing our public better yeah. well, but for, it's... Um, because that, you know, that's the, that's the right thing to do. And, yeah. and I, I think I always get from promoters, are oh, you going to scare the crowd if you say that? Yeah. And actually when we, on the few occasions when we're allowed to tell the truth, we actually get a really good response from the public. Well, but it, it's interesting you should say that because we talked a little bit in our intro this morning about when we announced this episode and who we were having on, that we were having you on and the topic we were going to discuss, we kind of got hit with some mixed response. You know, some people oh. saying, oh, you know, I, I, was, I was in Vegas for this Vegas event that happened and, you know, therefore I don't want to listen. I don't want to remember that. I don't want, you know, and I get that. I understand that. But again, I mean, you know, I don't think that ignoring a problem makes it go away. No, and I completely understand anybody who's been through a traumatic situation wouldn't want to relive it. I yeah. completely get that. I've, you know, I had a long time in the police and I've come through some fairly traumatic situations myself. I've lost friends. Yeah. I don't really want to talk about them. I don't want to hear other people talking about them because it brings back lots of bad memories. Of but course. Yeah. for the few people that we might upset in that way and we've got to be conscious of the fact that we could um and i'll, I'll always in circumstances like that always be really careful about what we say right. for those few people we might upset if it, it pre prepares thousands of others for what to do in an emergency then that's a gamble i'm prepared to take yeah and i would agree with you so you know let's back this up a little bit because we kind of hit the ground running when, when you answered <laughs> exactly. the phone um, so first of all, welcome Eric <laughs> onto Geezers of Gear episode 42. And so, you know, like we've said before, we are normally a equipment gear technology industry, um, podcast. And I think, and we think that you are very relevant to our podcast because most of the people who listen to our podcast, if not all of the people are in the concert business, they're in the event business, live event business, they're either, uh, you know, anyone from promoters and managers to um, LDs, uh, yeah, lighting designers, Props, front of yeah. house guys, sound Aging companies, people. lighting companies, venues, you know, we really get a mixed bag of event people who listen to this podcast. So we believe it's very relevant having you on. And I, I think that probably not to put any pressure on you but i think this is probably the most important podcast we've done out of the 42 now and so we're very much looking forward to having this conversation um 
Eric, of course, is the founder and I believe uh, sole owner of a company called Gentian Events, which uh, Eric is going to tell us about today. But I think even um, every bit as interesting as Gentian Events is your background. So um, maybe if you could spend, uh, you know, just a few minutes telling us how this all came about and what led you to the point of starting a company based around um, event, security. Event, event security and safety. Okay. Um, yeah, so I joined the police in London, the Metropolitan Police, in 1980 with an intention of having a career within policing and staying within policing and, and probably would have done had it not been for a motorbike accident in 2001, which left me with some pretty nasty back injuries uh, and a um, an opportunity, if you like, if you want to call it that, to go and work in an office because that was the only choice left to me. That office job was what they called events planning, um, and I started planning major events such as uh, drugs raids and firearms operations, but it also included some music festivals and concerts. So 2001 is my first year of getting involved in uh, music concerts, and they're pretty small, Five to 20,000 persons in Greenfield sites built from scratch. The, the classic type of Greenfield event. And I had three years of that and just got utterly hooked. So when I recovered from the, the motorbike accident, which was a year and a half, I'd taken my pelvis off my spine. Um, when I got back, I just wanted to carry on doing what I was doing. I did that until 2005, and then I went to New Scotland Yard, um, the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police and took over the planning of even bigger events. So the Notting Hill Carnival, which is a Caribbean carnival in West London. We've just had this year's event. Um, I was planning that for four years. That's around about 1.1 million people over two days. The New Year's Eve celebrations in London on the embankment with the firework display on the London Eye. Again, that's around about three to 400,000 people um, attending the event. And I carried on doing that right up until 2009 when I left those and started planning the 2012 Olympic torch relay and did that for three years and took that on the road for 70 days, the, um, building the teams, doing all the planning with the organizing committee and then taking it on the road. And that was the end of my service. But at this point, I rewind the clock back to 2005 and my very first New Year's Eve on the embankment in London, having planned an event for... We thought 200,000 people and an awful lot more turned up. And that night ended up with an awful lot of people in hospital because the crowd plan just didn't go very well at all. And it was the Hang on one second, I... Eric. Sure. So when you say planning the events, you're planning yep. what part of the event? So as a police officer then, my uh, it's quite interesting. There's been such a significant change in the last 10 to 12 years. As a police officer then, part of your role was planning for the crowds. The vast majority of crowd management, for want of a better term, was undertaken by the Metropolitan Police. There were security and stewards in place, but relatively few, a few hundred, and with a crowd of that size, clearly wasn't going to make a difference. And we were putting somewhere in the region of three to 3,500 officers on the street. So we'd work with the mayor's office, we'd work with the organisers of the actual firework display, the barrier and stewarding and security company, but we'd, as a team, we'd plan the whole event. Now, my role was the planning of the police operation, but that included the crowd management, where people were going to come, where they were going to leave via working with the transport networks. And when it all went wrong and we looked back at it with hindsight, we all agreed that the mistake we'd made was that 
we'd planned for crowd control. We knew what to do when things went wrong and how to use whatever was necessary to make crowds do what they didn't want to. What we hadn't done was put a proper crowd management plan in place, and certainly not for the numbers who eventually turned up. And the significance for me was that we knew things were going wrong, but we didn't know why. And we didn't know early enough because we hadn't got a good plan in place that indicated to us that we weren't where we should be at that stage in the evening. You know, we knew very early on that people were arriving in numbers greater than we'd ever seen and arriving much earlier than we'd ever seen. And we then had no backup. We just didn't know what to do next. And that's quite simply because at the time, there was no crowd management training uh, for police officers in the UK. And there's still very, very little now. We well, when, were good at crowd when, control. When, when you say crowd management versus crowd control, like what is really the difference there? So I think this, in simplest terms, crowd control is the use or the implied use of force to make a crowd do something it doesn't want to do. So you put barricades up, you put lines of cops, you draw batons, you use um, what well, we use CS over here, you use pepper, whatever it takes to either imply that you're going to make that crowd do what it wants to do, whether you want to, whether they want to or not. Crowd management is for us by definition, and we have a pretty good definition of it over here. It's assessing the space where the crowd is going to go, assessing the rate at which they'll fill and how they'll fill, working out a maximum safe number of people that can go into that space and then putting management systems in place to make sure that you don't exceed those numbers. And then once you've done all that, you make sure you've got all the information for your staff so that they know what and when to do. And you've got all the information that the crowd needs so that you know that they will respond reasonably well in some sort of emergency. So, so in that a sense, me, crowd management is, is, to, is problem avoidance and, and crowd control is problem resolution. Yeah, 99% of crowd management is what you do before to prevent it going wrong. Right. And then what you do on the day to continue to make sure it goes as you wish. Now, there's that old phrase in the old military phrase, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And while I wouldn't call the public the enemy, it sometimes feels like that. But they will never do, and your plan will never work exactly as you expect it to do. That, that is just too much to ask for. So having written the plan and knowing where you should be at what stage, if you're not seeing exactly what you expected, you know your plan well enough that you can then adapt it and you've got contingencies and you've got backups to do certain different things. You might open an extra gate that you've got spare. You might bring out a few extra staff that you had available. You could slow down the ingress if you've got a problem by increasing your search regime. Or if you've got a problem outside and you want to get them in quicker, you could soften your search regime. You know, it's a quick pat down rather than a really thorough feel in people's pockets. Right, right. And, and by doing that, you speed up or you slow down the rate at which people are passing through your search regime. So you mentioned, um, I, th I think you said 2005 is the year that went terribly wrong. So what are yeah. some of the things you did differently in 2006 then? Uh, 2006 was spent, I mean, bear in mind, we had other events as well, including the Notting Hill. But the whole of 2006, I guess the first two months was a total review of what we did badly. You know, people say never look back. Well, if you're not looking back, then you're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. 
we looked back at what went wrong and why it went wrong, and we worked out within a month or two just what the problems were, partly due to increased numbers, but partly because we had a, a system that, even on a good day, had might have failed. So, for instance, Westminster Underground Station sits directly opposite the main London Eye, the big um, revolving viewing spectator uh, guy, eye that goes around and around. People sit on there, but on the night of New Year's Eve, we shut it down and we use it as a firework launch display. So that's where everybody wants to be. And if people arrive over a period of 12 hours, gradually trickling into your space via that same station or the majority coming through that same station, when the fireworks finish at 10 past 12, if they all want to go back via the same route, which is a, an inherent human nature, we'd like to go back the route we came. So we'd like to go back to the underground station or the subway that we came in on because it feels comfortable. We go back and then we've got tens of thousands of people pouring into a tiny funnel which is inevitably going to be unable to cope and become jammed. It's a little bit like having, if you have a, a soccer, a football stadium of 100,000 people and the entrance to your underground was on the center spot where the ball's kicked off and then you just let everybody from every seat and every terrace, the 100,000 people all converge into the middle trying to go down one hole in the middle of your football pitch, you can imagine how they would jam and cram together. Right. That compression of crowds is incredibly dangerous. So a big step the following year was we simply shut that station from, I think, from memory, from midday, maybe a little bit later. But from midday, nobody arrived via that station. And we made it really well known during public advertising that that station wasn't going to open for the rest of the day. So the crowds came in from lots of different directions, from different subway stations. And at 10 past 12 they all started heading outwards, spreading out and dissipating rather than concentrating and focusing into one spot. So they were all heading outwards, so we had expansion of the crowd, so we didn't get the compression injuries that we'd had at the entrance of that station. Well, and I would guess communication is a big thing too because how did you get that information to that crowd so that they all knew so that, and paid yep. attention to the fact that that was going to happen? That started really early on. About three months out, we started getting messages into newspapers and onto stations. And we also did some stuff that, you know, with hindsight, people might say was deliberately intended to put people off. So we warned people that it's cold, it's dark, there's lots of bottles get dropped on the ground, so the surface is uneven and it's dangerous to walk on. And it's not really a suitable area to take young children because of the loud noise and the amount of alcohol that's consumed and the drunkenness. So push chairs might not be a good idea. Now we never said, we never said wheelchairs because we have similar rules around um, issues that you have in, in terms of the ADA. We don't want to put people with disabilities off from coming to an area, but by making it pretty clear that there's lots of broken bottles on the ground and we, um, push chairs and strollers may not have a comfortable time and children certainly wouldn't, by implication, we're kind of saying that maybe it might be uncomfortable for you if you're in a wheelchair as well. And that's the reality. Yeah. In a space that's probably comfortable for 40 to 50,000 people, if it's 200, 300 or 400 turn up uncontrolled into that same space, you're going to have problems. It's bad enough if you're six foot three and you can see over a crowd and you're strong enough and resilient enough to not be pushed around. But if you're a child or if you're in a wheelchair and you're not in control of all those people around you and they're falling over you, that must be a terrifying position to be in. And we thought it was right and fair that we warned people that that was the situation. 
But even on the night, we didn't start sending messages at 12 o'clock when people were due to go home. We started sending messages out on PAs and tannoys at 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh-huh. We strung huge catenary signage across the whole of the embankment, so from lamppost to lamppost, warning people that certain stations were open and certain stations were closed, and then using the audio systems to point people to those signs, and we asked them to start making their return journey home plans at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, not at 5 past or 10 past midnight. Yeah. We did... By doing that, it's, um, there's, a, there's a piece of crime psychology called, or piece of physiology almost, in the base of your brain that's called the RAS, the reticular activation system, which is a really clever filter that gets rid of a lot of the rubbish that you see and hear and smell and taste during the course of a day. You know, we take in billions of bits of data and our brain filters everything through this reticular activation system. It's designed to keep out all of life's rubbish that's not relevant. And unfortunately, one of the things that it often thinks isn't relevant is signage. You know, you think of the last journey you took in your car, how far you drove and how many road signs did you see? And then ask yourself the question, how many of those road signs did you actually notice? Yeah. And the answer is not even 1%, probably not even 0.01%, because our brains are clever enough to filter out all the extraneous rubbish that we don't need, except sometimes it filters out important stuff. And part of my job is to try to get people thinking earlier in the day about what they're going to do later on at night, activate their reticular activation system. So they start thinking about it and they start making decent plans about how to get home. And then we find that if we give them that information early in the day, when they're, we call it information hungry, they've arrived at the gig, they're looking for the bars, they're looking for the stages, they're excited, they're listening, they're looking we give them some information that they don't even think they need, but then it sticks, and it sticks, and it's still around at night when it's dark, and maybe they've had a drink, and maybe they've had some drugs, and they're tired. That information is still near the front of their brain, and they can use that to then make better plans. Well, and it's incredibly so important, the- because I, I would think if you've got a crowd of, of 100,000 or 200,000 people, and twenty or 50,000 try to go back to that same method that took them there and find that that bus or subway or train or whatever it is, is closed and is not available to them, then they become unruly. And now you're dealing with an even different problem. Yeah, you are. And people, you know, people get frustrated and they get angry and sometimes they get scared and that will trigger other behaviors that, that none of us need that they, they don't want to behave in that way. But if we leave them in a void without information as to what the right thing to do is, then yeah. they'll make stuff up themselves. Well, and I don't we can't know. do that, and we shouldn't do that. I don't know if you've seen anything about it, but we had uh, we have an event over here called Ultra Music Festival, and you know it's a huge EDM music festival, and yep. um, it was held in the same venue for a number of years in Miami, and this year they moved it to um, Key Biscayne, one of the uh, one of the islands, yep. and there's only one access in and out of that island, which is a bridge, a two-lane bridge. And yeah. so what happened, or is it four lanes, Henry? I don't remember. It's I think four it's four lanes. lanes. It's, yeah. it's two each way, yeah. Yeah, so what happened was, okay, the event was beautiful. It's a beautiful island. Everything's great. But at 12 o'clock, when the music stopped, you had 100,000 people that were now panicking because buses were late, 
Um, Uber wouldn't come onto the island because now there was people starting to walk across the bridge. The bridge was still open for traffic. And the only way off the island was over this bridge and people couldn't get on buses. You know, there was enough buses for, let's say, 5,000 people, but there's 100,000 people. There was no parking. So you had to park in Miami, not on the island. So it became a complete disaster. People weren't getting off the island till like six, seven o'clock in the morning and then trying to get an Uber. And so, you know, it was just a massive disaster. And the big thing was, I think there was just a lack of information. Yeah, uh, that's, that's generally it. You know, I mean, one of, the, one of the benefits we have over here that you don't currently have in the U.S., although we are working with the Event Safety Alliance to try to bring an idea over, we have something called safety advisory groups. So if I've got a plan for an event, I have to sit down and present my plans, especially my safety plans, to a panel. And that panel can be anything from 10 to 30 people. And it's the fire, the police, the ambulance, the council, the licensing, the highways, everybody. And they ask me really difficult questions. And they should. And the question that they would have asked me was, what is your plan to get 100,000 people off the island? And if they didn't like my plans, then my license is in jeopardy and my permissions get withdrawn. So I have to be able to explain how I would do that. And a really important part of that would be, you know, the information that we're giving people, not at midnight, it's too late by then. We need to be giving people information during the course of the booking system, when they're booking their tickets, on their website, via the WhatsApp groups or whatever communication systems you've set up. And the whole build, all the, the weeks and months up to it, and then when they're arriving during the day, you know, there will be delays. It is going to be late. But we have, yeah, we've got buses for 10,000 or 5,000, but those buses are doing a loop and they'll constantly be coming back. So, you know, why not stay behind and have another burger, have another beer, wait half an hour, wait three quarters of an hour. Um, it does, I mean, I don't know the event. I must admit, I have seen a little bit about it, but I, I don't know the detail. It does seem odd that you'd have a, an EDM of 100,000 finishing at everything finishing at exactly the same time and then such a, a narrow exit point that everybody's got to take the same route. Well, and I'm probably um, minimizing the statistics. I don't know the actual statistics, but what I do recall is that there were like four-hour lines or three-hour lines for buses, and um, so people just started walking. And then that just yeah. compounded the problem because now buses couldn't get through and cars couldn't get through and... Ubers couldn't get through, and so you know it just became a much much larger issue. Absolutely, it sounds you know it sounds pretty messy, and you know, I don't I don't like coming to some of the people's events without having seen the plans. But yeah. the 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 bottom line is that a hundred thousand people had a great day, but had a really crappy end of day, and that's what they'll remember when they go home, and that's what social media will tell everybody else. Yeah. And, yeah, they you know, were calling it, They were calling it fire too, and you know. <laughs> so, so, Eric, it's going to take a lot to match that. Yeah. So you'd mentioned early on in the podcast about, you know, planning an event for three or four years, and that can probably be an entirely separate podcast onto itself. But can yeah. you brief like, you know, in like 90 seconds or less, explain the evolution of a three year plan or a four year plan for a large scale event, a New Year's Eve, the well, torch carrying or whatever. Actually, what is- Henry, if we can back up a bit, let's let's sure. finish the story first, because, you know, I think we're <laughs> only at about 2009 at this point or 2006 or something. Sure. So if we could finish that first and then we'll get on to the, that very important question. I'll um, I'll quickly finish then 
what I learned in 2005 was that there was nothing in policing to teach me crowd management. And I went off and I did a couple of short courses and then I found that there was a university doing a, a degree, a two-year degree in crowd safety management, which I went and did. I took a year out uh, in, I think it was 2009, because we were really at the peak of planning the Olympic torch. And I then went back and did the final year and topped up to the honours degree. And included in that last year was a, a huge amount of crowd psychology and behaviours, which is what I really focus on now where I can. Um, the company was set up ready to go for 2010 because that's when I should have left the police. And then I got this offer to plan the Olympic torch relay. So I put that, I deferred that for another two years. But as soon as I left the police in 2012, we set this company up. And it would be insulting, I think, to say it was intended as a hobby. It was, it was intended to keep me slightly busy. I never expected it to take off in the way that it did. And from by 2013, we were pretty flat out and we've been that way ever since and in a really nice position where we have to turn down work. But I hate turning down work because it generally comes from people that really need some help and support. So I've now got a network of people. I don't employ anybody. The, the company is me and my wife uh, and one of our daughters. But we have a, an associate group of maybe 60 or 70 strong. So we're always in a position where we can get someone to come and help and give some advice if people really want it. Well, and so and prior, to, we are now. prior to Gentian, though, was like, where did people go? Uh, mostly security companies uh, and some security companies over here are really good. They're very good at the, the mathematics and the physics of crowds, working out flow rates and densities and what happens if you squeeze people too tight working out the right type of barricade to use and, and what will happen if you use the wrong one. But very few. We couldn't find anybody at the time that was dealing with uh, crowd psychology and crowd behaviours. There were a few professors were based in universities that were doing that, but none of them were actually working in the field. So there was nobody combining the four, if you, call, if you like, the four sciences, the math, the physics, the psychology and behaviours. Nobody was combining those and putting them into operational plans and delivering them in the field. And that's where, you know, it wasn't a business opportunity for me. It was, a, it was a natural thing to step into. But there seemed to be such a void there. There seemed to be this huge gap in the market. Um, and still, you know, some big promoters still don't do this. They don't want to pay for it. They, yeah. they would rather have four seconds of fireworks than a crowd manager because, hey, who even knows that a crowd manager exists? And a lot of audiences don't know. And they shouldn't know. They don't need to. You know, my yeah. work is right in the background. If I'm managing crowds properly, those crowds don't even know they're being managed. Well, and, and that's and, ideal. I mean, over here lately, the the mentality is really, you know, don't tell me what I need to do. I don't need crowd management. You know, I'm yeah. we're individuals and we can do it ourselves. And you know, it's crazy, but um, and that's where you know that's where the real psychology of crowds comes in. And we can go back to a guy called Gustav Le Bon in the 1800s, who was writing about how individuals in crowds slowly but surely their behavior starts to change and they become more crowd-like and then behave with the crowd through various influences and you can build you, you switch a crowd from what we call a physical crowd which is a 10,000 individuals but if something happens and something goes wrong then that 10,000 can become one psychological crowd really really quickly and that's where the danger starts. And those psychological crowds can be fantastically powerful and do good things, 
but they can also be fantastically dangerous to themselves. You know, because when they get scared and when they all start to run away from the barricade that's fallen over, the um, the, the New York scenario, barricade falls over, bang on the floor, this herd mentality of everybody just running away from that noise because the fear that spread through them that's when crowds hurt themselves and, well, and that's yeah, really easy to happen especially now it's gone from a crowd to a mob and yeah uh, yeah become very dangerous so uh, i have a yeah. crazy question Do, are you able to like would you plan differently for a crowd that you think is going to be high on molly Versus a crowd that you think is going to be smoking weed. I've got you. Yeah. There's no no two crowds are the same. Even two EDM crowds, depending on the artist, there's different behaviours. You know, it's like people say to me, "What about a heavy rock concert or a metal concert?" Yep, but no two metal concerts are the same. The artists will influence the crowds, and the type of people that go behave differently. You know, we don't get a wall of death at every single um, festival. We, they're quite unusual. But we'll probably get a mosh pit at most of those type of festivals. We get very few mosh pits at EDM, but we will get other behaviors. So what really worries me and really scares me sometimes is when two people or when people think that two events are so similar that you can use the same plan. And you can't. That, that cut-and-paste mentality take last year's plan off the shelf and change the date is incredibly dangerous. If you're not studying the artists and the artist's behavior and the way they're influencing their crowd and what that crowd are then doing, then you're not doing it properly as far as I'm concerned. But it, You've but really it, got to understand. It wouldn't get so granular that you're actually looking at the effects of a particular drug that you expect the audience to be using. Uh, you know, um, to, to maybe the, it's a crazy yeah, question. I, mean, I don't know. It, no, it's not. I mean, you know, I um, I went and saw Simon and Garfunkel years ago in Hyde Park in London, and having never smoked cannabis in the, my life, came out of there as high as a kite. <laughs> you know, the whole—I was like the only guy in there that wasn't smoking weed, yeah. but the air was full of it, yeah. and it was a chilled, relaxed, very, very um, calm that's crowd. I mean. as you would yeah, expect. that's what I mean. You yeah. know, and then you go to one where they're doing you know, uh, MDMA or something and, and they're angry and want to kill people. Uh, yep. And then your security and your medical services have got to be absolutely on top notch. I mean, we would spend more probably on, for a, an EDM. I spend a lot more money on a medical team than I do on the security team, but you know, you're going to have a massive medical response. And especially now with the, the amount of dirty drugs that are around that are being cooked in people's kitchens and mixed with God knows what, yeah. we're losing kids over here left, right, and center. Yeah. You know, the, the last yeah, weekend, we've sad. had five, five, five deaths this weekend. Wow. Um, and that's, you know, that's um, a weekend of maybe two or three significant festivals. Not the biggest, but I would call them significant, and one or two of the smaller ones. Five dead, I actually know of six. There's, a, there's another one that's not reached the papers yet, but six dead through drug misuse this weekend. And Terrible. it's mostly because they're taking stuff that they, they're not measuring, they don't know the strength, they don't know the power, and they're doing crazy stuff on it. And the thing with some of these drugs now is you haven't got time to get these kids to hospital. If you haven't got the medical treatment facilities on site to deal with what's happening and to stop them cooking, 
it's probably going to be too late by the time you put them in transport and drive them to the nearest hospital through the traffic that's caused, uh, that's being caused by the, the festival anyway. Terrible. So we try and make sure we've got enough on site that we can at least get them stable before we transfer them. Yeah, so back to Henry's question. You know, yeah. the like, Henry, you go ahead and ask it again. Yeah, so, so I mean, you know, here's the thing. You're mentioning three- and four-year timelines on planning for large events, right? Um, so, you know, just briefly, and again, like I said, it, it would be a huge explanation, but the timeline of, of planning something that takes three years, you know, how does that, how does that go or what's the evolution of that? And I know, it, I guess in 90 seconds or so, just a brief overview, how does that timeline evolve? Um, well, if you think about something like the Olympics or specifically for me, the Olympic torch relay, the timeline for that was actually seven years. And it literally was a piece of paper in a room with half a dozen people saying, what on earth do we know about this? What has it ever been done before? Where's it been done? What did they learn? What mistakes did they make? Can we go and ask them? Who are the points that we're going to go and ask those questions of? So that's the very, very first point for me always is, are we doing something so unique that it's never been done before? Or is there something so similar that we can go and ask people some questions? Now, in the in something like the Olympics, that's easy because there's all sorts of debriefing packages and you've got precedent, you can go and ask people. But in the commercial world, that's quite different because some people might not want to speak to you if they've done something similar before and made mistakes and um, they certainly won't, won't want to share those mistakes. But that's got to be the first point. You know, that glance over your shoulder to say, who's been there before me or done something similar and then can I go and ask them those questions? The next step for me is working out whose idea was this and what is it they wanted to achieve? What What is the outcome? What's what's the objective? And if the outcome and objective is just about making money, then we've got a problem straight away because you guys know as well as I do, to put a music festival on for its first year, you're probably going to lose a significant amount of money. Second year, you're going to lose a bit less. And if the third year you're breaking even or making money, you're doing really well. Uh, I had a client just last year and it's only a small festival. It's only 5,000 people over two days. And I suggested to him that if he goes and takes a quarter of a million pounds out of the bank, set fire to it, if the following week he's still got a marriage and a house and a job, then he can probably afford to go and put this festival. <laughs> but if not, then forget it. Because unless you're prepared to commit proper money to invest in the first term, first year and two, to get your event off the ground, then if you haven't got that money, then your your event's not going to run. Well, and some of these so, some of these festivals sadly are cutting all the wrong corners. And you know, Fire Festival is the most famous one, but there's so many others that have been getting cancelled, and even Woodstock um, that yeah. have that have been cancelled. And it's usually budgetary. It's usually because people with shallow pockets jumped into a very deep pockets field, literally. And uh, they couldn't afford the infrastructure and the, they couldn't afford to do it properly. So the, the few that still go on do it improperly. They cut corners. And sadly, you know, some of the things you're talking about are the things that get cut. Yeah, and it's, um, it's the things that the public don't see and wouldn't expect to be paying for that get cut first. And, of course, the, the, the most important one of those generally is safety, which is a real pisser. That's, for me... If a promoter thinks that safety is so unimportant, 
that that's where they can start making the cuts first. Yeah. That's disastrous. And, you know, for a lot of these events, they'll get away with it for a year, maybe two, maybe three. But eventually, all the, all the arrows will line up in the right direction at the same time on the same day, and they'll get bad weather or they'll get something else which stretches them beyond the point at which they can cope. Or and because dies. they cut down on security... Oh, if someone dies, you know, uh, and it's it's happening all the time, certainly in in drugs-related events. But we're getting, even over here, you know, we, I know there are people in the States that call us Safety Island because we're so strong on health and safety policy. Um, We've we've transferred our workplace, all our workplace health and safety is now applicable to the events industry quite rightly. But we also have equal responsibilities to those third parties. So, the public that come to our events have got just as much protection in law under our health and safety legislation as anybody who's working, any union man that's working in the field. The public have that same level of protection. And we get so close. The number of near misses that occur that never get reported. And I I know it's happening. I see it happening, and we're reporting it as and when we can. But you can see it happening all over the world. And when you say to someone what's your extreme weather plan? And they'll look at you like you've got two heads. You know, it makes me worry. Yeah. We know in the UK, our lightning strikes have increased, I think it's about 5% year on year for the last five or six years. Um, and you only have to look at what's happening in Europe. Just this last week, um, lightning strikes in Poland killed five and injured over 100, not at a music festival, just a normal day, just people out walking in the mountains. And this lightning storm came and killed five and injured another 100. And then I see festival promoters putting on events of 20, 30, 50, 100,000 people in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere with no plan as to what to do if lightning hits them on the second or third day. And that's, that's just not tolerable as far as I'm concerned. That's not acceptable. We, we should be doing better. I didn't realize you're also dealing with weather. For me, it's part, you know, I'm, I'm the crowd safety manager. My job is to keep the crowd safe um, and, and whatever that threat is. So whether it's uh, drugs as best I can, um, trying to keep them safe by making sure there's proper medical facilities in place, whether it's having a proper evacuation plan in case of severe weather, uh, whether it's having proper scrutiny and behavioural detection teams in place to protect our young people when they go to festivals from the type of people that we wouldn't really want anywhere near them. And unfortunately, that's the thing as well. You know, the levels of indecent assault on young people at festivals by older people, mostly older males, is going up. And we do our very, very best to have teams in place who look at the type of behaviours of those people and make sure they don't get in, or if they get in, we throw them out as quick as we can. And yeah. they turn up. We, we, every time we look for those type of paedophiles, we will find them. If we've got a concert that we know is going to attract young, um, particularly young teenage girls, uh, let's not name any artists, but we know who they are. If we've got um, that sort of artist performing, we know what the audience profile is like. We know that predatory male uh, paedophiles will come and try to get into those gigs. So we have plans in place to prevent that or at least to identify and then eject them. That's, I'm a crowd safety manager. Uh, Keeping I, the kids safe is just as important. I had never even thought of that as being an issue. Yeah, I, I'm I didn't blown know, away. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know and, that uh, sexual assault and, and was happening. It isn't until you go and look for it. And as soon yeah. as you look for it, you'll see it. Honestly, I thought it was only it's... backstage at most of these events, not like, <laughs> no. not in front of the stage. No, sadly not. You know? 
Um, Sadly not. It's, it's happening right in front of the front of stage barrier sometimes. So one of the things that I'm really curious about, I, I don't know if you've done many events in the U.S. or in North America, but obviously we have, um, you know, depending on which side of the political fence you ask, we have some gun problems over here. And um, yeah. so that is a major concern for a lot of these events. The fact that that, you know, pretty high power weapons are quite accessible and you're getting them in the hands of crazy people who want to get famous. So for them to get in or near an event and, um, you know, cause havoc or death is becoming, you know, a, a very big problem and has already been acted out. And so, but in Europe, and especially in UK where you're based, guns, I don't think, are quite as big an issue yet. So, you know, what are some of the nuances or differences, I guess, between a North American event safety package and a European or specifically British uh, event? Well, certainly in the UK, um, the prospect of an active shooter with a bump stock rifle is it wouldn't even feature on most of our risk assessments. You know, it's such a highly unlikely um, circumstance that, that it wouldn't feature. However, for some of our big ceremonial events where the royal family are going to be present, we, we do have plans in place for that type of attack and, and we will set up a lot of, we, the police, you know, with discussion, will set up anti-sniper positions and, and similar activities. And I guess, go back to my police head, uh, and as a firearms officer in, in London for about five years, if we were looking to set up sniper positions, the first thing we'd look up is where would the sniper want to be? And, you know, for the, the Route 91, you've, you've got a range of options, haven't you? That site has got plenty of places opposite it that you could set up a sniper position in the, in the hotels. Um, but where do you then set up an anti-sniper position from? And it's it's one of those few occasions when I would probably go and ask the military because the military would have the best idea in terms of how to set up anti-sniper positions to take out the snipers. But in terms of us in the UK, that that very, very rarely features. So what guns, has featured, guns aren't really so yet a problem in the UK? I, I'm not going to say that. Um, our, our shootings and stabbings are climbing... It seems month on month and month. We had our worst ever year last year for knife crime and gun activity. The There isn't the ready access to firearms over here. You can't walk into a shop and buy a gun. Yeah. The the process that you have to go through. And we, you know, we've had a couple of school shootings. Go back to the 70s and 80s. We, we had two very significant shootings um, and a third one in the 90s. And the decisions were made very early on that semi-automatic weapons simply weren't something that were necessary in public hands. Mm. So those few people that already had them, had them taken off them, they were seized, they were compensated, um, and there, there's just no appetite. You know, one of our um, school shootings, or our, our first real school shooting in Scotland, in Dunblane, was, um, it was the trigger for most people in the UK to say, no, there's just no need for them. So they scrap them. And, and even handguns, if you have a handgun now, it's held at a range in an armory. You can't just walk in and get it. 
you know, they're going to want to know what you want it for. You're going to you're going to fire it on the range, but you can't take it out on the street with you. Um, it's just about the only thing that we have. We have hunting rifles, uh, but they're in the hands of people who are going to have to justify with licenses when and where they're going hunting and, and carry the ammunition and shotguns. Uh, yeah. And there's a limited amount of damage you can do with a shotgun. So the handguns where they exist are in the hands of the criminal element uh, and, and obviously the police. Um, who hopefully will always outgun them. We still have primarily uh, an unarmed police force. We sit in, I think, around about 90% of the police are still unarmed. More than that, 95% are still unarmed. Although if you come through any of the airports and our major transport hubs now, you're going to see armed officers. Uh, but most of the time, if you dial 999 over here, the officer's going to turn up without a gun. Now, there is an increase in demand for officers to be equipped with taser, and that is growing, and I think probably within three to four years they'll all have taser. But I can't see a situation yet, so and what, I think it's a long way off before we all become or before they all become armed. So the bigger concern, I guess, there, um, you know, I know you had the Manchester situation with Ariana, Ariana Grande, and um, I'm sure there have been others. I don't know, but is it explosives? Is it knives? Is it what's generally the biggest concern? Um, knife crime is huge, but of course there's only a certain number of people you can stab at any one time. And the good, <laughs> it sounds bad to say it, the good thing about the knife crime is in the majority of cases, the victim and the suspect are known to each other. So it's, it's gang on gang, it's young drug dealers attacking each other. So innocent members of the public very, very rarely get involved and get in the way. In terms of attacks on our events, there's actually only really been one attack, and it was the Ariana Grande concert. But we've also had the two vehicle attacks on London Bridge and Westminster Bridge, and they are people's real focus of attention because you can go and buy a second-hand truck or second-hand van um, for next to no money. It doesn't have to be in much decent working order, and you can take that tomorrow and drive it down the, the, the street and do what the guy in Toronto did and just mount the pavement in a shopping crowd and start wiping people out fearing on and off the pavement as he did up there yeah. and that's a real fear we've had the Westminster attack was um, a vehicle ramming attack on Westminster Bridge and a, the driver of that vehicle then jumped out and stabbed a police officer to death and then the guys in London Bridge did the same they rammed um, people on the bridge and then in the nighttime economy and jumped out with, with knives to try and attack people and that's low-tech, very simple, no planning. You can do that. You could almost do that tomorrow, just jump in your car, load it so it's really heavy, so it's less easy to stop and it's going to have a bigger impact when it hits people, and then jump out with a knife and, and try and finish what you started. And, and in a and, and so, in a country where the, the officers, the first officers that arrive are probably not going to have guns, then that could continue for, for longer than it would ever there. Yeah. So when you're planning a, an event... Are you actually looking at things like, you know, there's a crowd assembled here. Um, we have to prevent any vehicle from being able to access this crowded area. I mean, are you actually looking at things like that? Like a van, a cargo van could access right here and run over a crowd. We need to somehow, you know, block that area or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's that's pretty standard now in planning over here for about the last two and a half, three years. So. We don't like vehicles mixing with crowds anyway. Vehicles and crowds are, are never a, a good thing. Um, but vehicles in the hands of the wrong people and unauthorized would be a really, really bad thing. Now, 
a lot of our events are outdoors in city centres and, and some areas still need to function. So you have to have vehicle access. And if that's the case, you would let vehicles in. You might try and control who's in those vehicles. But the other thing you might be able to do is to build in methods by which the vehicle never could never gain any real momentum or any speed. So build in chicanes. It doesn't have to be solid blockers and concrete and steel everywhere to keep them out. If you can let them in, but in a uh, way that they can only ever make a certain amount of speed, then that's that's one method. The other method, um, well, there are many methods, but other methods would include putting something in the road that would hook underneath the vehicle if it tried to drive through a, a barricade system, a lightweight barricade, something that you could slide out of the way when you were happy with the driver and slide back again afterwards. But if the driver tries to ram it, he's, he's going to go through but he's going to run over a big piece of steel that he's going to drag along the road and the amount of noise that he's making then warns the crowd of what's coming and gives them time to jump out of the way. And for a vehicle attack, you only need to give people about 10 or 15 seconds warning because if they hear that and turn around and see it coming, there's normally a pavement or a shop door or somewhere you can jump into to get out of the way of the vehicle. So you don't have to block everything and keep it out but you do have to have something in place. And that, yeah, that's been right at the forefront of our planning for a good three years now. You had mentioned in our in our pre-interview uh, about, and I guess you were kind of down on it, about the cities parking heavy vehicles in places to block streets and then assembling large crowds of people. And of course, obviously, what comes to mind for me is the, the New York Times Square uh, New Year's Eve events where they, you know, they take the salt trucks and they load them up to keep the vehicles off the road. Can you... Uh, can you kind of expand on that a little bit? You you had kind of thought that, that maybe that wasn't always the best idea uh, to control an event or to control vehicles. Honestly, I think it's a dreadful idea. It brings, what you're doing there is just introducing a whole new range of pain and, and problems by doing that. So the first question is, do you leave the driver with the vehicle? If you don't leave the driver with the vehicle, then if you had to move that vehicle quickly, you can't. So how do emergency service vehicles access an emergency? More importantly, if we've got an Ariana Grande person-born explosive device detonated in the middle of the crowd and they all start to run for the exits, but the exits have been blocked with large lorries, then those people are going to wedge in the, the small areas that you've left on the pavements either side. And if you ever see video of crowds running into small gaps, it is horrific it's why people die in nightclub fires. They get to the doorway and they're all trying to go into too tight a space and they wedge, they physically wedge in place. We've just had three kids killed over here in Northern Ireland during the St. Patrick's Day um, celebration back in March because they all rushed to try to get through a doorway at the same time. But this was going in and physically they wedge. And once you've wedged human beings together in a doorway, it's really difficult to unwedge them. And if they were, if these people, tens of thousands, were running down the road and then had to veer onto the pavements to get through and the pavements weren't wide enough and the lorries in the way, you're going to cause that same sort of wedging. So, if, yeah, if you, can, if you can predict, because you know that the next attack is going to be a vehicle attack on the crowd, those lorries might be a good idea. But we don't know what it's going to be. It could be a man with a gun, a man with a knife, a man with an explosive. It could be somebody with acid or a drone flying over the crowd spraying some sort of agricultural crop mix that scares the crowd into a stampede. And then we haven't left them enough exit space. So do you leave the driver with the vehicle? 
to to make an emergency exit if he needs to. Well, if you do that, if the terrorist has done their reconnaissance, all they do is stab the driver in the neck, steal the keys, and he's now got the lorry that you were trying to keep out there in the first place to drive straight into the middle of the crowd. It's just a whole world of additional pain. You know, these lorries, are their fuel tanks full? Is the next attack going to be someone putting a small hand grenade or a small explosive device on the fuel tank, blowing it up as the crowd is exiting? What does that look like? In the middle of a crowd, could somebody walk up to a, a tank, and very very most of these lorries have their tank on the outside, and put a small explosive rucksack onto the top of the tank, walk away and then detonate it a minute later? It would be so easy. I just think you've probably got the idea, I don't like lorries blocking the ends of streets. <laughs> yeah. I just yeah, think, I just if you're going to do it, you've got to do it really carefully. We do it over here. I'm not saying we don't. But A, if we're going to do it, we have the lorries pointing 30 to 45 degrees outwards, not straight across the street. And if I'm going to do it, I'll always use two lorries. And the two drivers will sit together in the cab with the cab locked so there's some protection for themselves. The engine on one of them will be running, and that will act like a sliding gate. So the other guy is looking back down the street, and if they hear anything, see anything, suddenly see the crowd running towards them, that lorry gets driven forward, and it almost runs alongside at an angle the, the one that's stationary and opens a gate that's half the width of the road straight away. There are ways of doing it. That makes a lot it. of sense. Yeah. There are ways of doing it, but leaving lorries just parked across roads without drivers or with drivers in them who can be attacked You've just, we've got to apply more thought to that process. We've got to get our heads into the heads of some of these terrorists. We know terrorists do hostile reconnaissance. We also know they do secondary devices. They do follow-up explosions after a primary explosion. We know they do that. So we've got to get ourselves into their heads and, and think like evil people, think like bad people, so we can second-guess what they might do so we can prevent it. It's exactly the same just trying to work out where the sniper would want to position themselves and then take that ground yourself or be in a position to see where that sniper might be. Eric, so, you, mentioned, you mentioned drones, and when it comes to events, are drones friend or foe? I think they're both. Um, depends, depends who's got their hands on the control. I've got um, a couple of friends now using drones for crowd management, uh, not to manage the crowds, but to relay pictures to the crowd manager. So you can get a real-time, there's a problem at this gate, throw a drone up, give me a picture of it, and 30 seconds later I've got a picture. Ah, now I see exactly what the problem is, and this is what we need to do. They're hugely beneficial in those circumstances. Now, we still... We have rules. The CAA, our Civil Aviation Authority, much like the old Federation, the Federal Aviation Authority, have got rules as to how close, near to, and above crowds we can fly. So we still can't and wouldn't want to fly right over the top of the crowds, but you can stand off far enough and get in a fight that you can look down and get some really good pictures, day and night now, um, and get a really good idea of where the pinch points are and, and what needs to be done about it. You know, you can see... Why is the crowd not leaving as quickly as it should through that gate? Ah, right, I can now see that in the middle of that crowd, a girl has fallen over and her six or eight mates are gathered around her, huddling to protect her. We need to get medical in there really quickly and we need to scoop her and get her out there so we can get that crowd flowing again. If I walked from the control room or tried to get through the crowd, if I was a security guy, through the crowd to see what was going on, 
by the time I get there, I'm stuck in the middle of the crowd and I can't give a very good assessment. It would take me ages to get there. And then I'm caught up in the melee as well. Phone me a drone up. Um, and yeah, you could you can replace that by having CCTV absolutely everywhere. But the great thing about a drone is that you don't need to know where the problem's going to occur. You just send the drone to wherever the problem is occurring. That's the good side. The negative side is, much like you, they are popping up left, right and centre. Everybody wants to get a fantastic picture of the show and they want to get it from the air. They're flying across stages. They're flying 10 feet above the crowd. The crowd are sometimes taking them out. You know, they're throwing things in the air and taking them out. And they're crashing. I've had one this year, pretty pretty decent size, six kilogram drone that crashed into our event site. Fortunately, it came down on the roof in the of a van in the traders area. Um, and it was just because the guy lost control. Uh, he he would claim, and we don't know which way it went, he would claim that it was taken out of the sky by a bird of prey. We think he might have flown a little bit close to a, a high-tension electricity pylon, uh, and either the interference from the pylon or maybe he clipped it, caused it to flip over. Either way, it crashed out of the sky. And it crashed out of the sky upside down with him applying more and more power to try and recover it so it was accelerating downwards and six kilo, uh, six kilograms like 15 16 pounds landing on a few people's heads is going to cause significant injuries it's also going to cause an automatic reaction from the rest of the crowd who aren't going to understand what's just come flying out of the air and hit three or four people and yeah, cause blood to fly everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. they're going to start sprinting off in all directions. So everything we've talked about before, you know, the um, go back to Vegas. The guy killed a lot of people. He injured four hundred, but there were four hundred others injured running away from where they thought the attack was coming from. So apart from the fatalities, there's double the number of injuries caused because people ran away as well, and that drone might only hit one person. It might actually hit nobody. But would it then cause a stampede in, in all directions? And I'll be honest with you, I hate the word stampede. But we're seeing more and more of that behavior now. You know, We saw it in Times Square um, just a couple of weeks ago when the motorcycle backfired. Um, we saw it in Toronto about four or five weeks ago at a theater when a couple of things happened at the same time and people literally sprinted for, for safety, thinking that there was a firearms incident during a, a show. It's, it's happening more and more. So we've got to be cognizant of it. And this is where drones are dangerous in that respect. But then my other fear is, would or could they be used as a means of delivery by a terrorist? And the answer to that is, yes, of course they could, quite easily. Especially if it was delivered in, in liquid form in a, an agricultural drone. The amount of stuff that they can now carry is really significant. And if somebody turned one of those crop spraying type drones into a weapon, then that's that's a frightening prospect. Well, I've I've seen and I'm sure we've all seen videos of of, you know, weaponized drones with with firearms on them with guns. Yep. And yep. and I I don't know how hell. effective they are, but yeah, I mean, they a, a decent sized drone now can carry five or six gallons of, of liquid. So if you can carry that, you can carry some form of automatic weapon. And then how difficult would it be to have a mechanism to fire that? Well, the answer to that is we know it's, it's dead easy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we know that in the Middle East and in North Africa, the terrorists have been using weapons in that 
respect for some time. We're using drones in the weapon context for some time. It's not here yet, and I like to think that that's partly because our intelligence services, both sides of the Atlantic, are so damn good that they're, they're cutting these people off, but surely only a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, the whole drone thing, because, uh, you know, again, it, they can be used for so much good. I could see an event, you know, if I was holding an event, I'd want drones in the sky all the time, not necessarily for marketing purposes, but for safety purposes and just knowing where the crowds are or where the problems are or you know, just being able to, instead of have sn having snipers all around the event, being able to have drones so that you can see problems happen. But, um, yeah, it certainly can become a bad thing as well. So I think that's the problem with drones overall is, you know, it's a great device, great invention, but just opens up a whole new bunch of problems or potential problems. So Yeah, one of, one of the other problems with drones is that we find that as soon as you put one up legitimately, and, and our police are using them over here quite a bit. As soon as a police drone goes up, it seems to legitimize the use by those people who shouldn't be flying them. So literally, we will we'll put a police drone in the air, and within five or ten minutes, we will see a member of the public trying to launch a drone as well. Because they think, well, the people who've sent them up there, they don't know it's the police. They just think somebody's flying the drone, so maybe it's okay. In a, a festival environment, that's unlikely uh, unless they've got ready access to their cars and they've got one in the boot. But for our, our central town and city events, it's becoming more and more problematic. Yeah. So, so the good thing, of course, if the police have got a drone in the air, then at least they can see the other one and hopefully track it and find out where it goes to. Right. But you've really got to wait until it lands. You know, any, any interference with the operator while it's in the air, you're just creating the danger that you're trying to prevent. So in our in our pre-call, Eric, we talked a little bit uh, the other day about security overall, uh, situational awareness, things like that. So, you know, in my mind, after hanging up the phone with you and being all excited and telling everybody, uh, you know, about this podcast, you know, you're planning an event A, right? So at the point where that festival is taking place, there are sound and lighting providers coming in there are porta potty providers coming in there are food vendors coming in and things like that right so you're planning yep. for that event but you know when i think about really what makes an event secure is um you know pre-training like you know we know tons of people on sound and lighting crews so you know i would almost see a need for you know if you're putting 25 or 30 people if you're a sound and lighting company and you're putting 25 or 30 people out on an event rental yourself that there should be an advanced uh, for lack of a better term certification or advanced training as to what to expect when you get to that event and what happens and we covered a little bit about you know identifying people that were out of place people that don't belong with the crews people that are taking photographs out in the parking lot so if you could expand on that a little bit i'd love to hear your your thoughts on how far back that training should go from exterior vendors before coming to an event well, most of our event sites now, you, you don't even get on without having some form of induction. You know, and as, a, as well as a crowd manager, I do a bit of work on smaller event sites as a safety advisor. So it's my job to write an induction plan and to make sure that as people come on site for the first time, you wouldn't do it every day. They might be there for five days. But before they come on site, everybody gets some form of basic induction as to site safety, evacuation routes, what to do in the event of a fire, where the medics are 
who, which channel to call on the radio for the safety guy or for the, the, um, the medics or whatever it is. And as part of that induction, and, and the induction maybe depends on how big your crews are, but it might just be to the crew chief. It might be to the whole team. And you're then wristbanded to say that you've had that induction and you don't work on that site without the wristband on. And yeah, we make a bit of a, we make light of it. Uh, as I walk around, I'll look at the stage crew and I'll put my arm up and show my wristband. And my expectation, unless they're hanging off the scaffolding, is that they put theirs up and show me those back. And, you know, is it a bit tedious? Sometimes some people get fed up with it. But most of the time, as long as you make light, it takes me two seconds to shout at a stage crew and go, guys, and wave an arm and show a wristband, and for them to wave an arm and show one back. I then know that the people that are there have got a basic safety induction, not just how to keep themselves safe. I'm never going to tell a stage crew how to work on a stage. That's way beyond me. I'm not doing that. But I do need to know that if they hear three blasts on my whistle, for instance, then I've got an indication that lightning's less than 20 minutes away and I need them down off that scaffolding and into a place of safety and that they know what that place of safety is. You know, it is in a vehicle, it is, it is in a truck, it is in a protected building, not just laying underneath the stage because it feels like a good place to be to, to bivouac for the night. Well, I would, think that, that, I would think that, you know, a big part of the success of what you're going to do is going to be the coordination of all personnel involved with an event, whether it's a concession vendor or a lighting guy or the police officers that are going to be working that detail. And that's, that's quite interesting when you tell even senior police officers that they need to sit down for 15 minutes and listen to you and they're not coming on your event site without a blue wristband on. And you get some eyebrows raised there and, you know, depending on where you're working in the US and depending on where you're working in the UK, you get some challenges back on that. I've got the right to, I'll go wherever I want. I would, actually, no, you won't because you're a police officer and you're really good at fighting crime. But what do you know about things falling from the roof of a stage and landing on your head? So you are going to listen to this, whether you like it or not. And generally speaking, they're, they're good. We have some arguments. But I need to know that everybody on that site has one plan in mind. And that plan is that if something happens that's different from what we expect, they need to get tuned into the radios really quickly, they get need to tuned into their crew chief really quickly, and that the crew chief and others know exactly what the plan is. Now, for me, that is an extra several hundred, if not thousand, pairs of eyes and ears, and every single one of those who's prepared to be brave enough to walk around and say to someone, excuse me, buddy, where's your ID, where's your accreditation, where's your wristband, where's your lanyard? If they do that, we know from research that goes back into the 60s and 70s, back into IRA ter terrorism in Northern Ireland, um, we know that those people go and do reconnaissance before they ever go and carry out an attack. And that sort of friendly challenge will put them off straight away. They don't like it. They don't like someone looking at them in the eye and asking them a question, even if that question is, hey, can I help you? Or, oh, I haven't seen you before. You, what, What's your job? Simple stuff that's friendly but is actually a challenge. People, you know, the, the terrorists do not like that. And if they're not wearing accreditation, why not? Who's, who is above wearing accreditation in yeah. our business? In this yeah. day and age, nobody should be above it. I wear mine, so why shouldn't everybody else? No, you know, I issue the NAM stuff. It, it's, it's all common sense. And, and why shouldn't police officers and medics particularly? We get a huge problem over here with bogus medics trying to get onto event sites. And that it's a, it's a good cover to 
act as a drug supplier or other nefarious criminal activities. Cleaners, you know, the people that are picking up the litter are just as easy popping around the back of the uh, the backstage area with a, if you've got a high-vis and a, a litter picker and a dustbin bag, whoever challenges you. And it's dead easy then to walk into the back of the ticket office and take a roll of 500 tickets, which you then sell out on the street for half price or double price. It's funny. I read, a, I, I read a book once, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy was like the um, self-named... Uh, grand poobah you know greatest guy in the world for sneaking into events and that was one of his big things is just act like you know what you're doing and you know so Um, put on a coffee services or a food services shirt go in the backstage gate carrying a couple of boxes and nobody's going to question you and And, you know you you read that book and maybe a couple of other thousand people read that book but the problem now is People are putting that stuff online now. That's on YouTube. There are yeah. websites dedicated into sneaking into events. So that's not thousands. That's millions, tens of millions of kids who, if they want to blag it into a festival, go online and research the easiest way to get into a festival. Well, if the kids are doing that because they want to listen to the music free, it's, it doesn't yeah, take a super brain terrorist to do the same. So we've, we've got to get braver, we've got to get stronger, we've got to get more interested in, you know, my job is not a technician climbing a ladder to put some lights up. My job is keeping the event safe, and at the same time, I've got to climb a ladder and put the, the, the lights up. We've all got to take a bit more responsibility, and it doesn't, it doesn't take a huge amount. And it, when you sit people down and explain that to them, you can almost see, I, I see people go, Actually, yeah, I could do, yeah, I never thought about it like that. But yeah, why not? I will yeah, do that. Yeah, makes if sense. If it's not pointed out to you in the first place, why would you ever think, you know, if you're a litter picker, why would you think safety at an event is your responsibility? Why would you think that you're actually carrying out an important job as you wander around looking at people? You see thousands of people all day, and every now and again you'll just see one that doesn't look right, and you should be confident enough that you can walk up to security or the police and say, could you just have a look at the guy in the blue jumper over my right shoulder? There's something that why. But you've also got to have the confidence that the security and the police are not going, then going to turn around and just laugh it off or make you feel stupid. They've then got to do their part as well. Yeah. And you mentioned hanging the lights, and, and I'm curious how involved you get on safety regulations or even just you know common sense safety when it comes to rigging above people's heads you know whether it's a catwalk or a a lighting fixture or a video screen or whatever it is but are you also looking at things like rigging points and what's flying over people's heads uh if it's flying over the crowd's head definitely if it's something that's going to fall off the stage and into the crowd definitely but i you know i've got really low technical skills in that area I know what looks obviously wrong and what looks obviously stupid. And will I challenge somebody over that? Yeah. But do I care whether a guy who's rigging is wearing steel toe cap boots? No. Makes no difference to me. If he falls from 50 feet, his steel toe cap boots are not going to protect him. But if he's climbing up there without a harness and hanging out the front in an area where other people are working, then, yeah, I am going to well, either speak to him or speak to his crew chief. Yeah, I'm talking more specifically, like, let's say there's a, there's a catwalk that, goes f- that comes down and Gene Simmons from KISS walks out on that catwalk and it ends up swinging out over the audience. And you just kind of put your eyes on that and, and then go to, 
you know, the rigging crew or the lighting crew and say, hey, show me some engineering documents on that or, you know, who signed off on it or any of those things? Do you get involved in that or just assume that someone's taking care of it? Uh, I don't assume. I, I do ask. But no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get involved in that. Um, so it's a little bit like pyro. I, I hate pyro. It's it's dangerous. It's explosives. It hurts people. It looks cool. But though. it's a necessary and a fantastic part of an awful lot of shows. But I've got to trust the pyro guys. Who, if I'm a safety guy, then I speak to the pyro guys and just check that if I'm a reputable company, and I should be able to trust them. I don't. You know, I don't get on a bus to go to work in the morning and ask the driver to see his driving license to make sure that he's currently competent and he's had a recent health check. There's limits as to what I can do. If we employ competent companies to do jobs, then, yeah, we might keep a casual eye, but I'm not going to start asking them about the the explosive mix or the angle of fire or the wind um, effect on their, their um, fireworks. They that should be something I can trust them to do. But if I see them doing something really stupid, then, yeah, I'll, I'll ask them the question. I'll, I'll try and ask it in a nice way, nice way that doesn't embarrass them and gives them a way out and an opportunity to go and fix it. But if I'm not happy with that, then I'm going to challenge them properly and, and, and we'll have to go to town over it. But that's relatively unusual. You know, most of the time it, it is guys doing things trying to do things a bit too quickly by cutting a few corners. And one of my biggest bones of contention over here is when I hear that the production manager is also responsible for safety, because that is a conflict of interest that I don't think is, should ever be allowed to happen. A production manager's got to get the show on the road on time and everything's got to be finished. Safety guy is also wanting the same objective, but needs it done safely. And if I'm the production manager and I'm short on time and I know the only way to get something done quickly is by cutting corners on safety, then the pressure's on me to cut those corners. And I, don't, I just don't think we should be allowing that, but it, it happens. I see it all the time. Is there a difference between safety and security or are they just synonymous? They are different, but inextricably linked, in my view. Security, you know, security does its job. Security keeps the bad people away from the good people. Security deals with the, the good people when they get so drunk or drugged that they start to misbehave. Security builds that fence and, and keeps us safe while we're enjoying what we do inside. But safety is bigger than that, um, or different from that. I'm not going to say bigger, it's, it's different. You can have a 100% secure site. You can you know search every single person that goes into the event site and make them strip down to their underwear and then put them through an x-ray machine. But what's going to happen is you're going to have a crowd of 95,000 people outside waiting to still get in when the show starts. And those 95,000 people then become the victim of a terrorist who walked in with a rucksack and targeted the crowd because the crowd were outside, so it was easy. Security, if, if security and safety aren't speaking to each other and don't understand each other's jobs, then both will fail. So they're different, but they're both trying to achieve, achieve the same objective. You don't need security or even if you've got the best security, should we say, crowds can still crush themselves if they get overexcited or get into too much um, activity in too small a space. That's nothing to do with security. People are perfectly capable of killing each other and themselves just by not understanding the danger of crowds and crowd density. Mm. It's happened time and time again. You know, if you go out to Saudi Arabia and look at what's happened at the Hajj, the, uh, the festival, the religious festival over there, year on year, 
hundreds, sometimes thousands of people killed, nothing to do with security, just bad management of those crowds. Yeah. So they, yeah, they are they are not the same, but they are inextricably linked. Yeah, and you know another uh, question that I was just thinking about. I know in in Europe, especially in in the UK in general, you in the past dealt with the IRA in a pretty big way, where you know yeah. they were putting bombs in garbage cans on busy streets or blowing up restaurants or nightclubs. Um, are they still active? Are they still a problem? Uh, if you're in Northern Ireland, yeah. If you're in Belfast, um, particularly up uh, Derry, London Derry, yes. If you were a police officer, you'd certainly be aware that you need to check underneath your car every morning and before you drive it because devices get planted. Uh, if you are opposing the activities of some of the groups, then yes, there's still a potential for you and it still happens for people to get shot for being opposed to those. It's been quiet for some years. I say quiet, it hasn't gone away, it's never gone away, but it's definitely been quieter. But there's um, there's a growing fear. I was out in Belfast just last week, and the day before, I think I flew in on the uh, Tuesday morning, and the Monday, there'd been four police officers injured in a, an IRA explosion. Now, the main, what we might have known as the IRA, splintered as the peace accord came in. It splintered several times. So the two main groups now are known as Kyra and... Um, Lyra, so the Continuity IRA and the Real IRA are two of the groups that split from there. And one of those created a situation on the Sunday whereby it was necessary for the police to go and continue an investigation into what was a fake or hoax device that had been planted. And as they walked in on the Monday, that device having been proven to be safe, a second device that had been hidden very close by was detonated and injured four of those. So we know, yes, they're still active. They are, they're nowhere near as active as they were in the 70s and 80s. You know, when I was uh, growing up in the outskirts of London and a cop in London, it was fairly regular to walk around town and hear an explosion and you'd just see a um, dust blowing up in the air. The great thing about the IRA, if there is a great thing about the IRA, is they generally gave warnings, uh, and those warnings were coded and gave enough time for people to evacuate from an area. And it was about disruption, and it was about financial impact, financial impact on the economy. Right. Um, that seems less the case with these two, with continuity and real IRA. They they do give warnings, but the warnings are often misleading. Um, and are designed to draw people into places where something real then happens. So, and so it's that, nothing like the 70s and 80s. And, you know, you could go to Belfast. Uh, I was aware of what had happened on the Monday, but I had two great days in Belfast. I love the city. It's, it's one of the most vibrant, enjoyable cities. It's tourism is growing. Um, I shared a, ho a hotel with, I think, about 1,000 Chinese tourists. I think I was the only English guy in there at the time, uh, or me and a Canadian, actually. And the tourism over there is really, really growing. I don't, they're saying it's linked to Brexit and our departure from Europe and whether that then means there's a hard border between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland, very complex politics, but that is being used either as the reason for or the excuse for um, a, a surge in provisional um, independent uh, Irish Republican army. Yeah. Right. So, you know... One of the questions I had was for sound and lighting companies, staging companies, anyone in the events industry, 
And, and then also for parents who are sending their children out to these events or for any of us who are going out to these events, what are some of the things that we can, um, so I guess it's a two-part question. First of all, the companies working these events, how do we keep our people safe? And then secondly, parents and people who are going to these events, how do we keep ourselves and our children safe? I think the answer in many ways is the same for both. It's situational awareness. It's knowing what you're walking into and working out in advance what your way out is. Um, and and that you don't have to be scared. You, you don't have to be fearful. But I think we do have to be alert. In this day and age, we've got to be smart and we've got to be thinking about what does, does this look right? Does this look normal? Or does this look wrong? And if it smells wrong and it feels wrong, then it probably is wrong and it's time to walk away and tell other people that it's time to walk away as well. For your guys going out on the road, um, knowing a venue, especially the, the guy, and I still don't understand how people work different venues night after night after night after night after night, and all they ever know is the stage. You know, they know the bit that they're working on, but maybe haven't worked out how to get out if there was an emergency. We, we have a part of our brain that helps us draw safe routes to and from um, places and we use the same routes every day to get to and from work we use the same doorway to go into the office we use the same corridor the same lift and so when the emergency occurs our brain tends to take us back the same way even though it might not be the safest way and that return route syndrome we know has been responsible for deaths in the past in in fires in particularly in emergencies where people have left the building or tried to leave the building the way they came in because it's the natural thing to do. Yeah, that's such an interesting you, point that you bring up, that, that return we've, we've route got, thing. Yeah, we've got dozens of circumstances. You know, people walk past fire exits, and they're clearly marked as fire exits, but they walk past them to get to the front door because that's the way they came in. And there's a lot of psychological influences. You know, that we know that's safe because we came that way this morning, or it's the way that we always use we know that the survivability rate in 9-11 was much, much higher in those people that had been made to practice and rehearse alternative exit routes from the building. Now, if you worked for Morgan Stanley and your security officer was constantly making you evacuate and doing fire drills but never letting you use the same staircase, you had such a higher chance of surviving during 9-11 than any other company there. Yeah. Um, and if we can just take a little bit of that on board ourselves and just walk into a building and go, well, a big building, uh, and there are the exits, you do it on an aeroplane. The, air, the airline companies, by law, have to tell you. For me, I just can't understand why our theatres, our showgrounds, our nightclubs, our venues, you know, why can't just before the show starts we be putting the lights back on and hitting a floodlight onto each of the emergency exits and saying, hey, guys, just in case, if you hear this alarm, boom, 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 we'd expect you to leave by this exit. We'd yeah. break some of the, the return route syndrome, we'd familiarize people with other options, and they'd react better and quicker as a result of that. Okay. And certainly your guys who, all guys who are, and girls who are working a different venue every single night, just, just have a look around and think of some alternative ways around. But, and the other thing for me is, is your people will or should know what the show looks and, and smells and feels like. If you're putting the same band on stage every night for 40 days and 40 nights around the world or every other night, you know within two or three days what that show feels like. 
And the night when fireworks start to go off, when there's never been fireworks before, is the time when you say, actually, does that sound like fireworks or does that sound like a bump stop rifle being unloaded? Yeah. yeah. And Waking is there a, up quicker. Is there a separate but, plan for the artist? So, like, does the artist coordinate with you or is the artist on their own where they've got a completely separate evacuation plan? Um, no, in most of our emergencies, anybody on the stage, including the artists, would have a route. We don't, you know, I'm, I'm not having a route that only one person can reach safety by. That's that's a waste of safe routes. If I've got a, a route that's safe out, then as many people as possible should be using it. So if an artist has expectations that they're the only one, them and their small entourage are the only ones going out of, X or Z, then they're probably going to be a little bit disappointed. But by the time we've got them outside and they've not been shot, blown up or burnt, they'll probably be more appreciative. But no, I I won't have... Madonna doesn't have a trap door in a a (laughs) tunnel under the building or something. (laughs) Not to the best of my knowledge. They may have a car waiting that nobody else will have. And we may be able to get that car out quicker but I'm not stopping the evacuation through doors A, B, and C because Madonna's limousine entourage wants to drive out because the building's on fire. Understood. Yeah, that makes sense. So, er- well, wait so er- one second, Henry. Okay. So, I, you know, I've got really one more question, and I, <laughs> I don't even know if it's one that you're, you're going to answer or want to answer. For me, it's like the money shot, you know? So top five threats for any crowded event. In your mind, and Ooh. you know whether Ooh. there are threats that have already been used, or threats that you think might be used, or and you know obviously we don't have terrorists listening to our program, as far as I know. Um, but I'm just curious what you know someone in the industry as close to this situation as you are, what you think the top threats are. That's a tricky one because honestly, I would have to make two lists when I do risk assessment. I look at two factors. One is the likelihood of something happening. And number two is the seriousness of the consequences. Now, those two things are then combined. And we do that sometimes numerically. So I, can, I, I don't know if you use a 5x5 five five matrix or a 3x3 three three matrix when it comes to risk assessments. They're, they're models that we sometimes use over here. If the threat of terrorism is very, very unlikely, it would only score one out of five. But the consequence of terrorism would be five out of five. You've got to look at Manchester or any other um, of the terrorist attacks. The consequences are huge. But out of a total potential score of 25, terrorism only scores five, which puts it near the bottom of the equation, which would make a lot of security services and police and um, FBI shout at me and, and go absolutely mad. But then when I look at other things like crowd crushing, the likelihood of crowd crushing is a three to four if the crowd isn't managed properly. The consequence of crowd crushing is multiple fatalities. We've seen fatalities where crowds have self-crushed and two and a half thousand people have died as a result. So that's got to be a four or five. So if the likelihood is a three and the consequence is a four or five, we're looking at a score of 12 to 15. So I then say that crowds in themselves are a higher risk than terrorism and, and people would look at me and pull weird faces and think I'd got two heads. 
but the chances of a crowd incident occurring are much, much, much higher than a terrorist attack. And the consequences are as bad. The likelihood of a lightning strike in the UK are so much more higher than a terrorist attack. But the consequences are pretty serious, you know, pretty, pretty much similar. You get a lightning strike in the middle of a festival of 100,000 people. If it hit in the middle of the arena, there would be dozens and dozens and dozens of people killed and hundreds badly burnt and injured. So I would put lightning above terrorism if I were going to do my risk assessment because the likelihood is much higher and the consequences are almost as high. So I'd, I'd probably have to sit and make two lists, but I think crowds, weather, and when I say weather, I include things like stages blowing over and landing on top of people. A real problem, yeah. A real problem, especially in some parts of your country, you yeah. know, in the windier parts where you suffer those, and you're now down in Florida with a, a hurricane on the way, and I've been there, 2003 or four, I think it was, I was subject to a mandatory evacuation. Um, and got evacuated to a place where the hurricane diverted to and then took the roof off my hotel, but that's yeah, another it was story. Probably <laughs> 2005. We got hammered pretty good in 2005 with, I don't know, was it three what hurricanes? Was it we got three major hurricanes that year. George, three in a row. Ivan. Yeah. What was the other one? George, Ivan. Wasn't that Katrina year as well? Katrina. Mm, I think so, yeah. I've, I've got a t shirt somewhere. Um, oh, do you? <laughs> well, Hurricane Andrew somewhere. was the big one. That was in. Uh, 93, I think, or 92. Yeah. 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 So I guess that, that, that just proves the difficulty in the answer to the question that you gave me, because part of the challenge is where am I and what is the event? If I say top five threats at an EDM festival, drugs. Yeah. Got to be. Yeah, it's Got to be. And, 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 you know, anybody who says there's a greater threat from terrorism at an EDM festival than there is from drugs... I'd argue, and I will argue forever, that that's not the case because the likelihood of a terrorist attack at an EDM festival, you know, most people, I don't know what a terrorist looks like. I know what the last ones have looked like. I don't know what yeah. the next ones look like. But well, one the of the vast challenges, majority of terrorists. Yeah, one of the threats for an EDM festival is the promoter. <laughs> you know, if, if you've yeah. got a bad promoter, they could really endanger the lives of many, many people. And, you know, I hate to say it, but Ultra this year was definitely an example of that. Fortunately, no one died, but there were certainly a lot of uncomfortable people. And, um, and you know, that fire Festival debauchery was uh, a pretty big problem. So, you know, the greed and stupidity and lack of planning of some of these, uh, and I'm picking on EDM, I guess it could be any it, genre. It, of music. it is. It's lots. Um and there is a genuine threat, I think, from promoter naivety. There, is, there are a lot of young promoters with a small amount of money, but a very high expectation of being able to make a massive profit, who actually don't realize what they're getting into. And by the time they're getting into it, and they're looking at their money disappearing, and potentially losing all the money that they've then borrowed from friends and family for this to show to go on. Yeah. They can't start cutting the bands. If they cut the bands, then people are going to want their ticket money back. They can't cut down the fence line, because if they cut down the fence line, people are going to jump over. So where do you start making your cuts? Yeah. And it's normally safety and security. So maybe at the very top of that Christmas tree of threats is either promoter greed or prom promoter naivety, one of, one of those two. And a combination of both of those is incredibly dangerous. 
And they, you're right, I think they're probably a bigger threat than all the other threats. Well, I have to tell you, I was looking for a much more fantastic list, like aliens and you know uh, <laughs> drones with you know sugar bombs or something. I don't know, Cloverfield like, monster. Yeah, yes. a monster. Yeah, I mean something, something exciting. But uh, you know, it really comes Sorry. down to pretty practical things. You know, yeah, like, don't it, kill it, ourselves is the biggest it, one. <laughs> yeah, we we know the threats because yeah. we see it. You know, yeah. you you see it. You know. You know that people are haggling over five cents in the dollar for a security team, trying to slice their wages by two, three, four cents. Yeah. So you get a, you don't get the best security team. You get tier two, tier three, tier four security teams when the promoter starts scraping a few cents off the the hourly rate, and and you get less quality people. That yeah. that's, that's another a real one. issue. Yeah. yeah you, you're seeing that stuff. You're seeing it exactly the same as we are. Then I don't think this is any different anywhere in the world. I think yeah. the same problems feature, and some of them just aren't spoken about. Um, we have a huge problem over here with ghosting in security companies, where I think I've paid for 100, but actually I only get 85 because they've gone for a cheaper level contract to put in a cheaper bid. But to make a profit, they then don't supply me with all the people I thought it was getting. Interesting. Well, that's just a flat-out rip-off, right? Yep, and that's unfortunately happening as well. Yeah. Well, you know, un unfortunately, there are evil people out there in every business. Um, and then there are naive and stupid people. And, yeah, you know, sadly. which is the most dangerous? I, I think yeah. any of those three can ultimately end up killing people. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been in the business my whole life, either as a as a musician that was that was touring and playing some of these venues or um, working in the business. And I still fear sending my 15 year old kid to a concert. You know, and I don't fear some of the boogeyman stuff, but I, I just fear, you know, the, the craziness and mayhem that can happen at those events. And, and uh, you know, you never want to send your kid away wondering if he's going to come back, right? So No, I'm, but uh, you can't, you know, you can't wrap them in cotton wool either. What we've got no. to do is we've got to educate them to look for the things we know. And, and yeah, they're going to roll their eyes. They're going to roll their eyes out loud every time you say, now look out for, look out for. But if some of what you tell them sticks, then on the night when something goes wrong, they remember it. Then we've done our job as parents. And, yeah, that's true. You know, my kids, my kids go to festivals. I hope my grandkids will go to festivals one day. I've got brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles that go to festivals and, and yeah. concerts. And if we can just educate them all a little bit, then hopefully, as a crowd, they might react better when something goes well, wrong. Well, but here's the thing, Eric. Like I put my kid in a race car. He's a racing driver. And so I'm not wrapping him in wool, but at the same time, so I don't fear putting him in a, you know, 150 mile an hour race car, but I do fear sending him to a rap concert. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I don't know, maybe that's just me being stupid and, and getting older. So, you know, one of the things we definitely want to talk about briefly is um, I know that you're now sharing some of this education and knowledge with other people, both through an affiliation, I guess, with Plaza but I think you're even doing some training over here in the U.S. as well. Um, can you talk about that for a minute? Uh, yeah, I do um, a two-day crowd safety awareness course. Um, I've been doing it for around about five or six years now. And it's, a, it's a day of maths and physics, or math and physics, the working out how quickly people move and or how slowly, what happens if you put too many people in one place at the same time, that sort of stuff. So we do a day of that. And then we do a day of psychology and behaviours, how 
people react in emergencies and, and what to do about um, how we can influence them. And uh, now we've got quite a few courses coming up over in the UK, but we're over, let me think, we're, uh, we're over in November in Rock Livitz in Pennsylvania, oh, which cool. I'm sure you with guys Claire, are familiar yeah. with. Yeah, with the, the Cube. Love that place. That would be my fourth trip over, I think, four years. Yeah. So they hold the Event Safety Alliance there every year. Oh, that's cool. In, um, it's, what is 21st of November, something like that. But we're coming over three or four days earlier, and we're going to run that two-day course. Um, yeah, we're going to run the two-day course on the 18th and 19th of November, just before we go into the conference. How do people get and involved then, with that? How, do they, how does someone sign up or register or... Okay, so if they, if anybody's interested, there's two choices. Either contact you guys and I'll send you the link. But if they just search the Event Safety Alliance, which is a US-based nonprofit, which has been around now for about five years, if they went on there on the website, they'd find straight away the booking dates and the way to book that. Um, likewise, the I don't know if you know, the Event Safety Alliance now has a branch in Canada. So we have Event Safety Canada as well, uh, and they're going to be running a couple of courses. I think we're, again, November 25th, 26th in Brampton, Ontario, and 28th, 29th in Toronto, downtown. So for those in the north part of the country, there's an opportunity up there as well. But the I don't know if you know this, Eric, say, but Canadians are very, very good people, and they're very honest, and they don't beat each other up or anything. So we really don't need <laughs> security and safety in Canada. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's no Let's, bad people in Canada. If, if we had another three, two or three days, we could talk about what happened at the Raptors victory parade just a couple of months ago. Eric, I'm um, Canadian. Because, I'm just joking. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, some of the footage that came out of there. I, I used to joke when I was running courses in Canada um, up until about six months ago, I would always joke. There's no evidence. I can't find a single case of a mass fatality crowd crush in Canada. And I think it is because people are just too friendly and too nice to each other. They're just too nice to crush each yeah. other. Yeah. And I still thought that until I saw the footage coming out of um, the Raptors, not yeah. just around the shooting, but what was going on before the shooting yeah, even it was took disgusting. place. Disgusting. Disgusting. Hey. Well, and the previous yeah. time, sadly, was another sporting event when Vancouver uh, the lost Canucks. the Stanley Cup. The Vancouver Canucks yeah. lost this, and they decided to burn the city down. And, yeah. you know, just two disgusting displays in an otherwise pretty peaceful and friendly country. So Well, and that's one of the things that we talk about, how those crowds turn from being really nice individuals. And particularly that um, the Vancouver one, if you look at the people that were arrested there, nice people. Yeah. Nice people with really good prospects and a good outlook on life and never, ever been in trouble before. And the next thing we know, putting bricks through police car windows and, and following them with petrol bombs. Uh, really good people caught up in the moment. And, and when you talk about crowds and crowd psychology, the way that t crowd turns from the physical individuals into that group psychology and what they then do is, is fascinating. And that's, that's the whole of day two of the course. Oh, the last bit of day two of the course is how we all respond in emergencies and how we can do better. And what kind of people should take the course? Anybody who's ever going to be involved in an event in a crowded place. Now, when I say that, I, I don't just teach festivals and concerts. We do work in shopping centres. I'm working with the biggest shopping centre in London at the moment, trying to manage their Boxing Day shopping crowds. 
because they have emergencies and places catch fire. So you can do this either professionally because you work in crowded environments and do festivals and concerts, or you can do this just privately because it's going to hopefully keep you safer when you're out with your family one day. But um, like, should large, everything we do, should large rental and production companies be sending someone to these events, like to the to the training? Should they? Be... I think it'd be it would be really useful if they did. You know, you're never going to get the whole team there. It's a, it's going to be too expensive and too time consuming. But to get somebody there who you think can come away with the key learning points from each session and then pass that on to the rest of your team, uh, and you know this. Sometimes that's exactly what people do, and I've, I'm, I'm engaged with a, a major TV and film company in um, the US at the moment, and that's exactly what they did. They sent one person to try and cascade that information down to everybody else, but as a result of that, they've now asked for three courses of 30 people each, uh, and we, wow. we're back over, I'm back over in New York in January and in Las Vegas in December, um, trying right. to teach them, and it's it's just... I guess the way this thing is, is it's stuff that we don't think about and we don't know about until somebody tells you about it and then suddenly you realize how important it is. Uh, and I, I, obviously I'm going to say that because it's me and my business and my interest. But all of this for me stems back in 2005 when I stood and watched a crowd of people getting really badly hurt. And A, I didn't know what to do about it. And B, I didn't even know why it had happened. With hindsight and training... I now know I could have prevented and should have prevented that from taking place. And there were times during the day where we could have taken action that would definitely have prevented it from getting that bad. Well, and, but we and just didn't know. Sadly, like Las Vegas taught us, um, you know, that people were running towards the shooter instead of away from the shooter and things like that, you know. So sometimes you just well, don't I, know what you don't know, right? I, I think both sides of the Atlantic, we have miseducated people to a certain extent, and, and the police definitely would criticise me for this, as would both our governments at the moment, although we are in some conversations. I think run, hide, tell, or run, hide, fight, as a principle, is relatively sound, but I think there's something that comes before that, and that's assess. Even if it's one second, just to try to assess what the danger is and where it's coming from, What's the point of running if you don't know where the danger is? Yeah. If you've not assessed that danger first, if you've not spent half a second just going, yep, that's where the guns are coming from. You know, and there's a significant number of people in Vegas who didn't run. They stopped, they looked, they saw where the, the, the flashes were, and they dropped behind front of stage mojo barriers because that's a heavy-duty barrier which at that distance would probably stop even a high-powered rifle bullet. Those people didn't run. And they they hid, survived. But they hid after they quickly assessed where the danger was and knew that if they dropped down behind that barrier, they weren't going to be hit. And they were all survivors. Yeah. Yeah, it's very good information. I mean, we, we appreciate you coming on so much. This We could talk to you for five hours and still Absolutely. not have enough information, obviously. And Have um, we already done that? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's been an hour and 45 minutes and counting. Oh, wow. So, we uh, we appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. You do have a small company, so it's not like you have a backup staff of 50 people who are covering you while you're talking to us. So, um, again, for our audience who want to get involved um, here in North America, the Event Safety Alliance, if you Google the Event Safety Alliance, you will find the ability to sign up for the courses. Sounds like a really important thing that uh, most companies should get involved in if you're in this industry. 
And um, how about in Europe? Same thing? Uh, yeah, we've, we've regularly got courses going over here. Um, probably the best thing for the... A lot of them are, are booked privately, but we can get people onto them. So it's, it's organizations who book because they've got 15 or 20 people that want to do it. But we can normally get one or two extras on there. So I guess the best way to do that would just be to contact us via the website um, or via my email, just Gentian Events. If you Google Gentian Events or um, email me at gentianevents at gmail.com. And it's G-E-N-T-I-A-N, gentianevents at gmail.com. Uh, drop us a line and we'll see where we are anywhere near you and whether we can fit you in, and we'll certainly try to. That's excellent, Eric. Thank excellent. you so much, and uh, you have a, a great day, and hopefully we'll meet you at one of the trade shows coming up or something. Fingers crossed. Let's stay in touch, guys. All right. Thank great. you, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks very much. Bye-bye now. Sweet, sweet thing